0: Hello and welcome to Season 7, Episode 13 of Dark Histories. I'm your host, Ben. This week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I'm taking my mid-season summer break this week just to give me some time to organise the uh, second half of the series. I, I say organise, what I mean is I'll, I'll list out the episodes I'm going to be doing and then ignore it for the next uh, <laughs> for the rest of the series and, and, and cause problems for myself, uh, as I always do. But... I, you know, I am going to be trying to try my best to organise the second half of the series and just take a little break from the writing and the researching. Uh, just, just as a little bit of a refresher. With that said, as a podcast listener myself, I, I don't like to just uh, re-upload a repeat episode or an old episode or something like uh, you know, because whenever I listen to other podcasts that do that, it always kind of bugs me a little bit. So, what I thought I'd do is uh, fall back onto the trusty M.R. James collected ghost stories that I've got. And read you another one of my favourite of his works. So this week, I thought I would choose. I, I, was, I was going from my book. I've got the the collected, uh, the Oxford University Press collected ghost stories uh, of M. R. James, which is a beautiful like cloth bound version of basically every single M. R. James story there is going. And I was going through the contents, and I thought I'd pick Lost Hearts. And the reason I thought I'd go for Lost Hearts. I'm pretty sure it was the the second story he ever wrote, so it's it's pretty early on in his his uh, sort of writing career. But it's also quite unique in that it's a uh, it's a little it's from a different perspective because most of M.R. James's or a lot of M.R. James's stories they come from a, an adult's perspective as uh, and, and they're often like a, a stuffy old English academic. But this one doesn't. It, it comes so it comes from a slightly unique perspective. It's also probably I. I If I was going to guess, I would say it's probably in most people's top five Mr. James stories, I reckon. At least top ten. But interestingly, it's one that doesn't really get the adaptations all the time. So it hasn't been sort of adapted for TV or film or anything like like a lot of his other stories. Uh, So, yeah, I thought I'd read Lost Hearts today. With that said, let's get on with it. Put your feet up or, you know, if you're at work, maybe don't put your feet up. I suppose it depends what your job is. If you're like an airplane pilot or something, maybe don't do that. But, uh, you know, relax as much as you can. And uh, let's get started with Lost Hearts by M.R. James. It was, as far as I can ascertain, in September of the year 1811 that a post-shay drew up before the door of Aswabi Hall in the heart of Lincolnshire. The little boy, who was the only passenger in the shay, and who jumped out as soon as it had stopped, looked about him with the keenest curiosity during the short interval that elapsed between the ringing of the bell and the opening of the hall door. He saw a tall, square, red-brick house built in the reign of Anne. A stone-pillared porch had been added in the purer classical style of 1790. The windows of the house were many, tall and narrow, with small panes and thick white woodwork. A pediment, pierced with a round window, crowned the front. There were wings to right and left, connected by curious glazed galleries, supported by colonnade with the central block. These wings plainly contained the stables and offices of the house. Each was surmounted by an ornamental cupola with a gilded vane. An evening light shone on the building, making the window panes glow like so many fires. Away from the hall, in front, stretched a flat park studded with oaks and fringed with firs, which stood out against the sky. The clock in the church tower, buried in trees on the edge of the park, only its golden weathercock catching the light, was striking six, and the sound came gently beating down the wind. It was altogether a pleasant impression, though tinged with the sort of melancholy appropriate to an evening in early autumn, that was conveyed to the mind of the boy, who was standing in the porch waiting for the door to open to him. The post chaise had brought him from Warwickshire, where some six months before he had been left an orphan. Now, owing to the generous offer of his elderly cousin, Mr Abney, he had come to live at Aswabi. The offer was unexpected, because all who knew anything of Mr Abney looked upon him as a somewhat austere recluse, into whose steady-going household the advent of a small boy would import a new and, it seemed, incongruous element. The truth is that very little was known of Mr Abney's pursuits or temper." Professor of Greek at Cambridge, had been heard to say that no one knew more of the religious beliefs of the later pagans than did the owner of Aswabi. Certainly, his library contained all the then-available books bearing on the mysteries, the Orphic poems, the worship of Mithras and the Neo-Platonists. In the marble-paved hall stood a fine group of Mithras slaying a bull, which had been imported from the Levant at great expense by the owner. He had contributed a description of it to the Gentleman's Magazine and he had written a remarkable series of articles in the Critical Museum on the superstitions of the Romans of the Lower Empire. He was looked upon, in fine, as a man wrapped up in his books and it was a matter of great surprise among his neighbours that he should even have heard of his orphan cousin, Stephen Elliot, much more than he should have volunteered to make him an inmate of Aswarby Hall. Whatever may have been expected by his neighbours, it is certain that Mr Abney... The tall, the thin, the austere, seemed inclined to give his young cousin a kindly reception. The moment the front door was opened, he darted out of his study, rubbing his hands with delight. "'How are you, my boy? How are you? How old are you?' said he. "'That is, you are not too much tired, I hope, by your journey to eat your supper?' "'No, thank you, sir,' said Master Elliot. "'I am pretty well.' "'That's a good lad,' said Mr Abney. "'And how old are you, my boy?' It seems a little odd that he should have asked the question twice in the first two minutes of their acquaintance. "'I'm twelve years old next birthday, sir,' said Stephen. "'And when is your birthday, my dear boy? Eleventh of September, eh? "'That's well, that, that's very well. "'Nearly a year hence, isn't it? "'I like. "'Ha! <laughs> "'I like to get these things down in my book. "'Sure it's twelve? "'Certain?' "'Yes, quite sure, sir. <laughs> "'Well, well.' Take him to Mrs Bunch's room, Parks, and let him have his tea, or supper, whatever it is. Yes, sir, answered the staid Mr Parks, and conducted Stephen to the lower regions. Mrs Bunch was the most comfortable and human person whom Stephen had as yet met in Aswabi. She made him completely at home. They were great friends in a quarter of an hour, and great friends they remained. Mrs Bunch had been born in the neighbourhood some 55 years before the date of Stephen's arrival and her residence at the hall was of 20 years standing. Consequently, if anyone knew the ins and outs of the house and the district, Mrs Bunch knew them, and she was by no means disinclined to communicate her information. Certainly, there were plenty of things about the hall, and the hall gardens which Stephen, who was of an adventurous and inquiring turn, was anxious to have explained to him. Who built the temple at the end of the laurel walk? Who was the old man whose picture hung on the staircase, sitting at a table with a skull under his hand, These, and many similar points, were cleared up by the resources of Mrs Bunch's powerful intellect. There were others, however, of which the explanations furnished were less satisfactory. One November evening, Stephen was sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, reflecting on his surroundings. "'Is Mr Abney a good man, and will he go to heaven?' he suddenly asked, with the peculiar confidence which children possess in the ability of their elders to settle these questions." the decision of which is believed to be reserved for other tribunals. "'Good. Bless the child,' said Mrs Bunch. "'Master's as kind a soul as ever I see. "'Didn't I never tell you of the little boy as he took out of the street, "'as you may say, is seven years back, "'and the little girl two years after I first come here?' "'No. Do tell me about them, Mrs Bunch. Now, this minute.' "'Well,' said Mrs Bunch, "'the little girl I don't seem to recollect so much about.' I know Master brought her back with him from his walk one day and give orders to Mrs Ellis, as was housekeeper then, as she should be took every care with. And the poor child had no one belonging to her. She told me so her own self. And here she lived with us, as a matter of three weeks it might be. And then, whether she was something of a gypsy in her blood or what not, but one morning she out of her bed afore any of us had opened an eye and neither track nor yet trace of her have I set eyes on since. Master was wonderful put about and had all the ponds dragged but it's my belief she was had away by them gypsies, for they were singing round the house for as much as an hour the night she went, and parks, he declare, as he heard them a-calling in the woods all that afternoon. Dear, oh dear, a hod-child she was, so silent in her ways and all, but I was wonderful taken up with her, so domesticated she was, surprising. And what about the little boy? said Stephen. Ah, the poor boy, sighed Mrs Bunch. He were a foreigner, Giovanni he called hisself. And he had come a-tweak in his erdy-gurdy, round and about the drive one winter day, and Master had him in a minute, and asked all about where he had come from, and how old he was, and how he made his way, and where was his relatives, and all his kind as art could wish. But it went the same way with him. they are unruly lot, them foreign nations, I do suppose, and he was off one fine morning, just the same as the girl. Why he went, and what he done, was our question for as much as a year after, for he never took his erdy-gurdy, And there it lays, on the shelf. The remainder of the evening was spent by Stephen in miscellaneous cross-examination of Mrs Bunch and in efforts to extract a tune from the hurdy-gurdy. That night he had a curious dream. At the end of the passage at the top of the house, in which his bedroom was situated, there was an old disused bathroom. It was kept locked, but the upper half of the door was glazed and since the muslin curtains which used to hang there had long been gone, you could look in and see the lead-lined bath affixed to the wall on the right hand, with its head toward the window. On the night of which I am speaking, Stephen Elliot found himself, as he thought, looking through the glazed door. The moon was shining through the window, and he was gazing at a figure which lay in the bath. His description of what he saw reminds me of what I once beheld myself in the famous vaults of St Mickens Church in Dublin, which possessed the horrid property of preserving corpses from decay for centuries. A figure, inexpressibly thin and pathetic, of a dusty leaden colour, enveloped in a shroud-like garment, the thin lips crooked into a faint and dreadful smile, the hands pressed tightly over the region of the heart. As he looked upon it, a distant, almost inaudible moan seemed to issue from its lips, and the arms began to stir, The terror of the sight forced Stephen backwards and he awoke to the fact that he was indeed standing on the cold boarded floor of the passage in the full light of the moon. With a courage which I do not think can be common among boys of his age he went to the door of the bathroom to ascertain if the figure of his dream were really there. It was not and he went back to bed. Mrs Bunch was much impressed next morning by his story and went so far as to replace the muslin curtain over the glazed door of the bathroom. Mr Abney, moreover, to whom he confided his experiences at breakfast, was greatly interested and made notes of the matter in what he called his book. The spring equinox was approaching, as Mr Abney frequently reminded his cousin, adding that this had been always considered by the ancients to be a critical time for the young, that Stephen would do well to take care of himself and to shut his bedroom window at night and that Censorinus had some valuable remarks on the subject. Two incidents that occurred about this time made an impression upon Stephen's mind. The first was after an unusually easy and oppressed night that he had passed, though he could not recall any particular dream that he had had. The following evening, Mrs Bunch was occupying herself in mending his nightgown. "'Gracious me, Master Stephen,' she broke forth rather irritably, "'how do you manage to tear your nightdress all to flinders this way?' Look here, sir, what trouble you do give to poor servants to have to darn and mend after you. There was indeed a most destructive and apparently wanton series of slits or scorings in the garment, which would undoubtedly require a skilful needle to make good. They were confined to the left side of the chest, long parallel slits about six inches in length, some of them not quite piercing the texture of the linen. Stephen could only express his entire ignorance of their origin. He was sure they were not there the night before. But, he said, Mrs Bunch, they are just the same as the scratches on the outside of my bedroom door, and I'm sure I never had anything to do with making them. Mrs Bunch gazed at him, open-mouthed, then snatched up a candle, departed hastily from the room, and was heard making her way upstairs. In a few minutes, she came down. Well, she said, Master Stephen... It's a funny thing to me how them marks and scratches can of come there too high up for any cat or dog to have made them, much less a rat. For all the world, like a Chinaman's fingernails, as my uncle in the tea trade used to tell us of when we was girls together. I wouldn't say nothing to Master, not if I was you, Master Stephen, my dear, and just turn the key of the door when you go to your bed. I always do, Mrs Bunch, as soon as I said my prayers. Oh, that's a good child. Always say your prayers and then no one can hurt you. Herewith, Mrs Bunch addressed herself to mending the injured nightgown with intervals of meditation until bedtime. This was on a Friday night in March 1812. On the following evening, the usual duet of Stephen and Mrs Bunch was augmented by the sudden arrival of Mr Parks, the butler, who, as a rule, kept himself rather to himself in his own pantry. He did not see that Stephen was there. He was, moreover, flustered and less slow of speech than was his wont. Master may get up his own wine if he likes of an evening, was his first remark. Either I do it in the daytime or not at all, Mrs Bunch. I don't know what it may be, very like it's the rats or the wind got into the cellars, but I'm not so young as I was and I can't go through with it as I have done. Well, Mr Parks, you know it's a surprising place for the rats in the hall. I'm not denying that, Mrs Bunch, and to be sure, many a time I've heard the tale from the men in the shipyards about the rat that could speak. I've never laid no confidence in that before, but tonight, if I'd demean myself to lay my ear to the door of the further bin, I could pretty much have heard what they were saying. Oh there, Mr Parks, I have no patience with your fancies. Rats talking in the wine cellar indeed. Well, Mrs Bunch, I've no wish to argue with you. All I say is, if you choose to go that far bin and lay your ear to the door, you may prove my words this minute. What nonsense you do talk, Mr Parks. Not fit for children to listen to. Why, you'll be frightening Master Stephen there out of his wits. What? Master Stephen, said Parks, awakening to the consciousness of the boy's presence. Master Stephen, he he knows well enough when I'm playing a joke with you, Mrs Bunch. In fact, Master Stephen knew much too well to suppose that Mr Parks had in the first instance intended a joke. He was interested, not altogether pleasantly, in the situation. But all his questions were unsuccessful in inducing the butler to give any more detailed account of his experiences in the wine cellar. We have now arrived at March 24th, 1812. It was a day of curious experiences for Stephen, a windy, noisy day which filled the house and the gardens with a restless impression. As Stephen stood by the fence of the grounds and looked out into the park, he felt as if an endless procession of unseen people were sweeping past him on the wind, borne on resistlessly and aimlessly, vainly striving to stop themselves, to catch at something that might arrest their flight and bring them once again into contact with the living world of which they had formed a part. After luncheon that day, Mr Abney said, Stephen, my boy, do you think you could manage to come to me tonight, as late as eleven o'clock in my study? I shall be busy until that time, and I wish to show you something connected with your future life, which it is most important that you should know. You are not to mention this matter to Mrs Bunch, nor to anyone else in the house, and you had better go to your room at the usual time. Here was a new excitement added to life. Stephen eagerly grasped at the opportunity of sitting up till eleven o'clock. He looked in at the library door on his way upstairs that evening, and saw a brazier, which he had often noticed in the corner of the room, moved out before the fire, and an old silver gilt cup stood on the table, filled with red wine, and some written sheets of paper lay near it. Mr Abney was sprinkling some incense on the brazier from a round silver box as Stephen passed, but did not seem to notice his step. The wind had fallen, and there was a still night and a full moon. At about ten o'clock, Stephen was standing at the open window of his bedroom, looking out over the country. Still as the night was, the mysterious population of the distant moonlit woods was not yet lulled to rest. From time to time, Strange cries, as of lost and despairing wanderers, sounded from across the mere. They might be the notes of owls or water birds, yet they did not quite resemble either sound. Were not they coming nearer? Now they sounded from the nearer side of the water, and in a few moments they seemed to be floating about among the shrubberies. Then they ceased, but just as Stephen was thinking of shutting the window and resuming his reading of Robinson Crusoe, he caught sight of two figures standing on the graveled terrace that ran along the garden side of the hall. The figures of a boy and girl, as it seemed. They stood side by side, looking up at the windows. Something in the form of the girl recalled irresistibly his dream of the figure in the bath. The boy inspired him with more acute fear. Whilst the girl stood still, half smiling, with her hands clasped over her heart, the boy, a thin shape, with black hair and ragged clothing, raised his arms in the air with an appearance of menace and of unappeasable hunger and longing. The moon shone upon his almost transparent hands and Stephen saw the nails were fearfully long and that the light shone through them. As he stood with his arms thus raised, he disclosed a terrifying spectacle. On the left side of his chest there opened a black and gaping rent and there fell upon Stephen's brain rather than upon his ear, the impression of one of those hungry and desolate cries that he had heard resounding over the woods of Aswabi all that evening. In another moment, this dreadful pair had moved swiftly and noiselessly over the dry gravel, and he saw them no more. Inexpressibly frightened as he was, he determined to take his candle and go down to Mr Abney's study, for the hour appointed for their meeting was near at hand. The study, or library, opened out to the front hall on one side, and Stephen, urged on by his terrors, did not take long in getting there. To effect an entrance was not so easy. The door was not locked, he felt sure, for the key was on the outside of it as usual. His repeated knocks produced no answer. Mr Abney was engaged. He was speaking. What? Why did he try to cry out? And why was the cry choked in his throat? Had he, too, seen the mysterious children? But now everything was quiet and the door yielded to Stephen's terrified and frantic pushing. On the table in Mr Abney's study, certain papers were found which explained the situation to Stephen Elliot when he was of an age to understand them. The most important sentences were as follows. It was a belief very strongly and generally held by the ancients, of whose wisdom in these matters I have had such experience, as induces me to place confidence in their assertions that by enacting certain processes which to us moderns have something of a barbaric complexion, a very remarkable enlightenment of the spiritual faculties in man may be attained, that, for example, by absorbing the personalities of a certain number of his fellow-creatures An individual may gain a complete ascendancy over those orders of spiritual beings which control the elemental forces of our universe. It is recorded of Simon Margus that he was able to fly in the air, to become invisible or to assume any form he pleased, by the agency of the soul of a boy whom, to use the libelous phrase employed by the author of the Clementine recognitions, he had murdered. I find it set down, moreover, with considerable detail in the writings of Hermes Trismegistus that similar happy results may be produced by the absorption of the hearts of not less than three human beings below the age of twelve years. To the testing of the truth of this receipt, I have devoted the greater part of the last twenty years, selecting as the corpora villia of my experiment such persons as could be conveniently be removed without occasioning a sensible gap in society. The first step I effected by the removal of one Phoebe Stanley, a girl of gypsy extraction, on the March 24th, 1792. The second by the removal of a wandering Italian lad named Giovanni Paoli on the night of March 23rd, 1805. The final victim, to employ a word repugnant in the highest degree to my feelings, must be my cousin, Stephen Elliot. His day must be this March 24th, 1812. The best means of effecting the required absorption is to remove the heart from the living subject, to reduce it to ashes and to mingle them with about a pint of some red wine, preferably port. The remains of the first two subjects, at least, it will be well to conceal. A disused bathroom or wine cellar will be found convenient for such a purpose. Some annoyance may be experienced from the psychic portion of the subjects, which popular language dignifies with the name of ghosts, but the man of philosophic temperament to whom alone the experiment is appropriate, will be little prone to attach importance to the feeble efforts of those beings to wreak their vengeance on him. I contemplate with the liveliest satisfaction the enlarged and emancipated existence which the experiment, if successful, will confer on me, not only placing me beyond the reach of human justice, so-called, but eliminating to a great extent the prospect of death itself. Mr Abney was found in his chair, his head thrown back, his face stamped with an expression of rage, fright and mortal pain. In his left side was a terrible, lacerated wound exposing the heart. There was no blood on his hands, and a long knife that lay on the table was perfectly clean. A savage wildcat might have inflicted the injuries. The window of the study was open, and it was the opinion of the coroner that Mr. Abney had met his death by the agency of some wild creature. But Stephen Elliott's study of the papers that I have quoted led him to a very different conclusion. So that was Lost Hearts by M. R. James. One of my favourite of M. R. James stories, like I say, and it's it's say it's it's quite unique for an M. R. James story. Uh it's a bit of gore in there, a bit of violence. Bit of revenge and definitely a great atmosphere. It's one of the, for me, one of the sort of creepiest slow burn atmospheres of all the MR James stories. So I thought maybe you'd enjoy that. Uh, Say, so I hope you did enjoy it. I think we probably have time for one more story. So I'll pick a shorter one. Uh, this one, I think, is uh, another one of probably the lesser uh, adapted uh, MR James stories. But it's quite a fun one, nonetheless. It's called a school story. Before we start, I just want to give a quick shout to this week's sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Better Help. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. If I saw myself now as a younger kid, I would never have believed that this is where I was going to end up. And therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding, because sometimes. We don't really know what we want or why we react the way we do, unless we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. I did actually use BetterHelp for a while and I I found it a really positive experience. Uh, I I found uh, talking through just things with my therapist, uh, some smaller issues that I was... I wouldn't say there were issues that I were having, but they were sort of holding me back a little bit without me probably realising. And just talking them through really, really helped me. Better Helps Therapy is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suitable to your schedule. And it's incredibly easy to set up as well. It's, it's not intimidating. So you just fill out a, a brief questionnaire. You get matched with a licensed therapist. Uh, and if you're not sort of into that therapist, you can switch at any time for no additional charge whatsoever. I had no problems with my therapist, so I didn't really try that out. But like I say, it's it's supposedly fairly straightforward. Uh, my, my therapist was was great, so I say, lucky me, really. I didn't, I didn't have to change. But if you are thinking of starting therapy and maybe, uh, you know, go into an actual therapist, it's, it's, you find that difficult a struggle or it's intimidating, why not give help a try? Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash dark histories today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash dark histories. Cheers. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. And I can 100% relate to that. Learning French uh, at my school was the worst. Uh, but thanks to Babbel the language learning app that's sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun, easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be travelling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. I did use Babbel. I took up French, which is a language, like I said, I learned it at school and it was awful at school. Uh, But I thought I'd just sort of like dip my toes in and see what it's like learning it for myself. Um, It was much more fun. They have small little lessons, uh, which makes it a perfect way to to learn. If you're, you know, if you're busy or you're on the go or, or you are just one of those sort of learners that just prefers very short little lessons, sort of once a day. Uh, what I think is especially important is that um, that the lessons are crafted around real life situations, uh, so you actually learn to have sort of practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and things like that. But they're they're all actually usable situations that that you might come across uh, rather than uh sort of these weird fantasy situations that, that are just never gonna happen and, and quite often if, if you if you know language textbooks well, they're usually out of date. Babel, on the other hand, much better. It's all like uh practical, useful language. All of their lessons are, are actually designed by by language experts. They've got uh speech recognition technology so you can talk and it recognizes uh your pronunciation. Uh, you can actually take uh, sort of one-to-one tuition lessons and, and class lessons as well. It, there are just so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to all those sort of lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos and stories. And it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So you can try it out. If it's, if it's not working for you, no problems. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, you can get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash That's Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Dark Histories for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, Language for Life. Thanks very much for listening to that. So let's get on with, say, the second story, which is a school story. Two men in a smoking room were talking of their private school days. At our school, said A, We had a ghost's footmark on the staircase. What was it like? Oh, very unconvincing. Just the shape of a shoe with a square toe, if I remember right. The staircase was a stone one. I've never heard any story about the thing. That seems odd when you come to think of it. Why didn't someone invent one, I wonder? You never can tell with little boys. They have a mythology of their own. There's a subject for you, by the way. The folklore of private schools. Yes, the crop is rather scanty, though, I imagine. If you were to investigate the cycle of ghost stories, for instance, which the boys at private schools tell each other, they would all turn out to be highly compressed versions of stories out of books. Nowadays, the Strand and Pearsons and so on would be extensively drawn upon. No doubt. They weren't born or thought of in my time. Let's see. I wonder if I can remember the staple ones that I was told. First, there was the house with a room in which a series of people insisted on passing a night and each of them in the morning were found kneeling in a corner and had just time to say, I've seen it, and died. Wasn't that the house in Berkeley Square? I dare say it was. Then there was the man who heard a noise in the passage at night, opened his door and saw someone crawling towards him on all fours with his eyes hanging out on his cheek. There was, besides, let me think, ah yes, the room where a man was found dead in a bed with a horseshoe mark on his forehead, and the floor under the bed was covered with marks of horseshoes also. I don't know why. Also, there was the lady who, on locking her bedroom door in a strange house, heard a thin voice among the bed curtains say, Now we're shut in for the night. None of those had any explanation or sequel. I wonder if they go on still, those stories. Oh, likely enough, with additions from the magazines, as I said. You never heard, did you, of a real ghost at a private school? I thought not. "'Nobody has that ever I have come across. "'From the way in which you said that, I gather that you have?' "'I really don't know, but this was what was in my mind. "'It happened at my private school, 30-odd years ago, "'and I haven't any explanation of it. "'The school, I mean, was near London. "'It was established in a large and fairly old house, "'a great white building with very fine grounds about it. "'There were large cedars in the garden.' as there are in so many of the older gardens in the Thames Valley and the ancient elms in the three or four fields which we used for our games. I think probably it was quite an attractive place, but boys seldom allow that their schools possess any tolerable features. I came to the school in September, soon after the year 1870, and among the boys who arrived on the same day was one whom I took to, a Highland boy whom I will call McLeod. I needn't spend time in describing him, The main thing is that I got to know him very well. He was not an exceptional boy in any way, not particularly good at books or games, but he suited me. The school was a large one. There must have been from 120 to 130 boys there as a rule, and so a considerable staff of masters was required, and there were rather frequent changes among them. One term, perhaps it was my third or fourth, a new master made his appearance. His name was Samson. He was a tallish, stoutish, pale, black-bearded man. I think we liked him. He had travelled a good deal and had stories which amused us on our school walks. So there was some competition among us to get within earshot of him. I remember, too, dear me, I'd hardly thought of it since then, that he had a charm on his watch chain that attracted my attention one day, and he let me examine it. It was, I now suppose, a gold Byzantine coin. There was an effigy of some absurd emperor on one side. The other side had been worn practically smooth and he had cut on it, rather barbarously, his own initials, GWS, and a date, 24th of July, 1865. Ah yes, I can see it now. He told me he had picked it up in Constantinople. It was about the size of a florin, perhaps rather smaller. Well, the first odd thing that happened was this. Samson was doing Latin grammar with us, one of his favourite methods, perhaps it's rather a good one, was to make us construct sentences out of our own heads to illustrate the rules he was trying to make us learn. Of course, that is a thing which gives a silly boy a chance of being impertinent. There are lots of school stories in which that happens. Or anyhow, there might be. But Samson was too good a disciplinarian for us to think of trying that on with him. Now, on this occasion, he was telling us of how to express remembering in Latin, and he ordered us each to make a sentence, bringing up the verb, mermini, I remember. Well... Most of us made up some ordinary sentence such as I remember my father or he remembers his book or something equally uninteresting and I dare say a good many put down Mamino, librum meum and so forth. But the boy I mentioned, McLeod, was evidently thinking of something more elaborate than that. The rest of us wanted to have our sentences passed and to get on to something else. So some kicked him under the desk and I, who was next to him, poked him and whispered to him to look sharp but he didn't seem to attend. I looked at his paper and saw he had put down nothing at all, so I jogged him again harder than before and upbraided him sharply for keeping us all waiting. That did have some effect. He started and seemed to wake up, and then very quickly he scribbled about a couple of lines on his paper and showed it up with the rest. As it was the last, or nearly the last, to come in, and as Samson had a good deal to say to the boys who had written Memoniscus patrio" and the rest of it, it turned out that the clock struck twelve before he had got to McLeod, and MacLod had to wait afterwards to have his sentence corrected. There was nothing much going on outside when I got out, so I waited for him to come. He came very slowly when he did arrive, and I guess there had been some sort of trouble. Well, I said, what did you get? Oh, I don't know, said McLeod. Nothing much, but I think Samson's rather sick with me. Why, did you show him up some rot? No fear, he said. It was all right as far as I could see. It was like this. Memento. That's right enough for a member. And it takes a genitive. Memento pute inter quarter taxos. What silly rot, I said. What made you shove that down? What does it mean? That's the funny part, said MacLeod. I'm not quite sure what it does mean. All I know is it just came into my head and I corked it down. I know what I think it means. Because just before I wrote it down, I had a sort of picture of it in my head. I believe it means, remember the well among the four. What are those dark sort of trees that have red berries on them? Mountain ashes, I suppose you mean. I've never heard of them, said MacLeod. No, I'll tell you, use Well, and what did Samson say? Why, well, he was jolly odd about it. When he read it, he got up and he went to the mantelpiece and stopped quite a long time without saying anything with his back to me. And then he said, without turning around and rather quiet, what do you suppose that means? I told him what I thought, only I couldn't remember the name of the city tree and then he wanted to know why I put it down and I had to say something or other. And after that he left off talking about it and asked me how long I'd been here and where my people lived and things like that. And then I came away. But he wasn't looking a bit well. I don't remember any more that was said by either of us about this. The next day, McClod took to his bed with a chill or something of the kind, and it was a week or more before he was in school again, and as much as a month went by without anything happening that was noticeable. Whether or not Mr Samson was really startled as McClod had thought, he didn't show it. I'm pretty sure, of course, now, that there was something very curious in his past history, but I'm not going to pretend that we boys were sharp enough to guess any such thing. There was one other incident of the same kind as the last, which I told you. Several times since that day, we had to make up examples in school to illustrate different rules, but there had never been any row except when we did them wrong. At last, there came a day when we were going through those dismal things which people call conditional sentences, and we were told to make a conditional sentence, expressing a future consequence. We did it, right or wrong, and showed up our bits of paper, and Samson began looking through them. All at once, he got up, made some sort of odd noise in his throat and rushed out by a door that was just by his desk. We sat there for a minute or two and then, I suppose it was incorrect, but we went up and I or one or two others to look at the papers on his desk. Of course, I thought someone must have put down some nonsense or other and Samson had gone off to report him. All the same, I noticed that he hadn't taken any of the papers with him when he ran out. Well the top paper on his desk was written in red ink which no one used and it wasn't in anyone's hand who was in the class. They all looked at it McLeod and all and took their dying oaths that it wasn't theirs. Then I thought of counting the bits of paper and of this I made quite certain that there were 17 bits of paper on the desk and 16 boys in the form. Well, I bagged the extra paper and kept it and I believe I have it now. And now you will want to know what was written on it. It was simple enough, and harmless enough, I should have said. See to non veneris ad me, ego, venium ad te. Which means, I suppose if you don't come to me, I'll come to you. Could you show me the paper? interrupted the listener. Yes, I could, but there's another odd thing about it. That same afternoon I took it out of my locker. I know for certain it was the same bit, for I made a finger mark on it, and no single trace of writing of any kind was there on it. I kept it, as I said, and since that time I've tried various experiments to see whether sympathetic ink had been used, but absolutely without result. So much for that. After about half an hour, Samson looked in again, said he had felt very unwell, and told us we might go. He came rather gingerly to his desk and gave just one look at the uppermost paper, and I suppose he thought he must have been dreaming. Anyhow, He asked no questions. That day was a half-holiday, and next day, Samson was in school again, much as usual. That night, the third and last incident in my story happened. We, McLeod and I, slept in a dormitory at right angles to the main building. Samson slept in the main building on the first floor. It was a very bright full moon. At an hour, which I can't tell exactly, but sometime between one and two, I was woken up by somebody shaking me. It was McLeod, and a nice state of mind he seemed to be in. Come, he said. Come, there's a burglar getting in through Sampson's window. As soon as I could speak, I said, Why not call out and wake everybody up? No, no, he said. I'm not sure who it is. Don't make a row. Come and have a look. Naturally, I came and looked and, Naturally, there was no one there. I was cross enough and should have called McCloud plenty of names, only I couldn't tell why. It seemed to me that there was something wrong, something that made me very glad I wasn't alone to face it. We were still at the window looking out, and as soon as I could, I asked him what he had heard or seen. I didn't hear anything at all, he said. But about five minutes before I woke you, I found myself looking out of this window here, and there was a man sitting or kneeling on Samson's windowsill and looking in, and I thought he was beckoning. What sort of man? McLeod wriggled. I don't know, he said, but I can tell you one thing. He was beastly thin, and he looked as if he was wet all over. And, he said, looking around and whispering as if he hardly liked to hear himself, I'm not at all sure that he was alive. We went on talking in whispers some time longer, and eventually we crept back to bed. No one else in the room woke or stirred the whole time. I believe we did sleep a bit afterwards, but we were very cheap next day. And next day, Mr. Samson was gone, not to be found, and I believe no trace of him has ever come to light since. In thinking it over, one of the oddest things about it all seemed to me to be the fact that neither McLeod nor I ever mentioned what we had seen to any third person whatever. Of course, no questions were asked on the subject, and if they had been, I'm inclined to believe that we could not have made any answer. We seemed unable to speak about it. that's my story, said the narrator. The only approach to a ghost story connected with the school that I know. But still, I think an approach to such a thing. The sequel to this may perhaps be reckoned highly conventional, but a sequel there is, and so it must be produced. There had been more than one listener to the story, and in the latter part of that same year or of the next, one such listener was staying at a country house in Ireland. One evening, his host was turning over a drawer full of odds and ends in the smoking room. Suddenly, he put his hand upon a little box. Now, he said, you know about old things. Tell me what this is. My friend opened the little box and found in it a thin gold chain with an object attached to it. He glanced at the object and then took off his spectacles to examine it more narrowly. "'What's the history of this?' he asked. "'Odd enough,' was the answer. "'You know, the yew ticket in the shrubbery. "'Well, a year or two back, we were cleaning out the old well "'that used to be in the clearing here. "'And what do you suppose we found?' "'Is it possible that you found a body?' said the visitor, "'with an odd feeling of nervousness. "'We did that. "'But what's more, in every sense of the word, we found two. Good heavens, too! Was there anything to show how they got there? Was this thing found with them? It was. Amongst the rags of the clothes that were on one of the bodies. A bad business, whatever the story of it may have been. One body had the arms tight around the other. They must have been there thirty years or more, long enough before we came to this place. You may judge we filled the well up fast enough. Do you make anything of what's cut on that gold coin you have there? I think I can, said my friend, holding it to the light. But he read it without much difficulty. It seems to be GWS, 24th of July, 1865. So that was a school story. Another favourite M.R. James of mine. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed them. Next episode, we'll be back to regular episodes, and I'm already working through that episode, uh, say in my time off uh, because we all know that actually i can't really stop working so uh yeah in my time off i am actually working on it and it's going to be a bit of a bumper episode it's going to be uh, almost like a two-in-one with sort of two interlinked stories in one so yeah look forward to that that'll be next episode which as usual will be in two weeks time as i say i hope you did enjoy the mr james stories this week if you would like to get in touch with me you can do so contact at dot is the email uh Darkhistories.com is the website. Uh, you'll find all the ways that you can get in touch there, social media, um, all the ways that you can support if you would like to, link to the Discord server and all of those good stuff. It's all there. All the links are also in the show notes if you want to take a look in there, as are the uh, discount codes for any sponsors that I've got at the moment. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. Say a little bit different, but I hope you enjoyed it all the same. Until next episode, take care, sleep time.